Okay, so this morning is Sunday. It is February 18th, 2007, and our message this morning is cutting a covenant. You ever heard somebody say they cut a good deal? No? Y'all are all asleep already. Three seconds into the preaching, y'all are non-responsive. You're killing me. (laughs) It's small enough, I'll call on you. (laughs) Hebrew, we do not make covenants. The Scripture has rendered words, so-and-so made a covenant, established a covenant, or entered into a covenant. Hebrew does not say that. The Hebrew words are different than ours. For instance, that phrase on that sign over there that says, As as His time drew near for Him to return to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. There's no word for resolutely in Hebrew. If a Hebrew wanted to say that, he would say, as the time drew near for him to return to heaven, Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And that phrase, set his face like flint, means resolute. The Hebrew word pictures that they have in their language are vibrant and alive. And it's an exciting language to begin to learn. I'm loving this. One of the things that you find out is that there is no phrase in the Hebrew Bible that says made a covenant. It is cut a covenant. This is for a specific reason, and we're going to get into that, what the cutting of a covenant is. But one of the first things I want to tell you that David is going to write on the board with a big one next to it is relationship. So yeah, get up there and write. You'll be Vanna White today. Turn and... That's right. And Baton Rouge Mom, if you will write on that calendar relationship. Turn with me to Genesis 21. Yeah, leave them off over to the left like that because we're going to write on the right too. You can sit down. I'll call you back up in a minute. In Genesis 21, I want you to see a use of a covenant here. I've taught you about this covenant before in a message called the Wells of Salvation, but I want you to see something. In Genesis 21, starting in verse 22, it says, At that time Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything that you do. Incidentally, this is a little theological note for you. You know why God was with Abraham in everything that he did? Because Abraham was with God in everything that he did. Yeah. The word of the prophet says that God is with you when you are with him. Take out your Bible concordance. Go find that. That is a good scripture. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness I have shown you. Sounds like something of Abraham, huh? Abraham said, I swear it. To Abimelech, I'm sorry, then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. Looks like they both have issues, right? Uh, Abimelech wants to make sure Abraham's going to treat him well. And Abraham wants to make sure Abimelech's going to do the right thing about this water. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You didn't tell me and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech and the two men made a treaty. This word treaty is the same as covenant. And you're going to find out that Abraham brings sheep, seven of them, and he gives them to Abimelech. The word doesn't say what's done with them. It just says he gives them and that there'll be a sign. And then they make a treaty at a well in a place called Beersheba, 
And there is a green tree set up there for all time as a reminder of the covenant that they made. In the Bible, covenants are to establish relationships. We could have an agreement, and the agreement would just be our words, right? Say, Gabe, I promise to do this. Do you promise to do the same? Sure. But you walk off and you forget about your words. Covenants were not this way. They always had witnesses and symbols as reminders. They always had things that were supposed to bring you into remembrance of the covenant, something that made it precious because you would be in relationship. And in Abraham and Abimelech's case, these are two people that might naturally be enemies, right? Might naturally be enemies. Abraham is a nomadic guy coming through Abimelech's land that God said he's going to give him. (laughs) Couldn't that put you at odds with someone? Yeah, that's what the Middle East crisis is about today. And yet, by the basis of this covenant, they had peace Abraham's entire life. Do you remember when the peace was broken? Yeah, I have to go back and listen to that message. In Isaac's lifetime, some of Abimelech's servants had stopped up the wells and forgotten about it. And you know what Isaac did? He went to Abimelech and said, Hey, you made a covenant with my father Abraham. So on the basis of that covenant, I'm asking you to quit this. And they went out and reopened the wells. This is because covenants were to establish a relationship. And all covenants have certain things in them. And one of the things they have in them is promises. Did you see how Abraham and Abimelech both made a promise in this covenant? uh, Abraham's promise was, I'll treat you nicely. Abimelech's promise is, I'm going to leave your wells alone. Then they exchanged something. These seven ewe lambs. doesn't say what was done with them, but it does say that they made a covenant. It's interesting. As we study more about covenants, you can wonder and surmise what's happened with these ewe lambs. Then they planted a tree that would be a sign as a reminder of that covenant. This is important because we've staked our claim in Christianity on something called a new covenant. But what did that mean to the people who first heard it? Where does it come from? When Jesus holds up a glass of wine and says, in this blood I make with you a new covenant, what did that mean to the people? You know, it's really interesting that in the ancient Near East, not Far East China, not Middle East like Iraq, but the Near East, Israel, these people had certain ideas about covenants that were well-founded in history. And the first one that I want you to know is they were to establish a relationship. There would be things that bound you. In a marriage covenant, your rings remind you of the vows that you took. In a marriage covenant, you enter into it as equals for lifetime. And it came with it promises. Most of the time, a husband promises to provide for a wife. A wife promises to follow the leading of the husband. Did you all take those, you married people? Yeah, yeah. And every time somebody sees a ring on your finger, it should remind them of that covenant. Covenants have a long and rich history, and they're relational. Look at 1 Samuel 18. I want you to hear a covenant between David and Jonathan. This will be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel. 18. I went to 23. Steve's the first one there. Go ahead, brother. Y'all in 18? Steve's there. Okay. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him 
as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did successfully, and Saul gave him a high rank in the army, and they go on to sing songs. David and Jonathan entered into a covenant together. They exchanged things. Why might they have needed a covenant? Jonathan is heir to the throne, but God has said it will belong to David. They both recognized something. They came to an agreement, a conclusion, and the Bible says they entered into a covenant. Goes on to say in 2318 of this same book that this covenant was a lasting one and one that David honored, and it had to do with who would sit on the throne. Covenants establish relationships with people. So when God makes a covenant with a people, it's an important thing. Turn with me to Genesis 31. I want to show you one more covenant, and then we'll get deeper into this. Have I already put you asleep? Good. With Abraham and Abimelech, there was a covenant of peace. There was an agreement between them not to molest a water source. With David and Jonathan, there was a covenant of friendship, that they would be one in heart and soul, that they wouldn't let ambition come between them. And the word was made or cut a covenant. Now, sometimes when the Bible says they cut a covenant, it doesn't explain all of the details, but I'm going to give you those details. You ever told somebody that you went and cashed a check? Yeah, you have all said that, right? Did you have to explain to them that to cash a check, you had to show your license, sign the back of a check, go into a bank, hand them that, and then they gave you money? Why didn't you have to explain that? Because it's implied. In Hebrew, when you say that you make a covenant, certain things are implied. It's implied that there were promises on both parts. It is implied that there were terms on both people's parts. It is implied that there are both blessings for getting this right and curses for not getting it right. And it is implied that there is a symbol and a witness to remind both parties of the covenant. This is in all covenants. You know in Genesis 31? In Genesis 31, starting in verse 40. If the God of my father, I guess I ought to give you some background. Laban and Jacob are in a little bit of a predicament. Laban has treated Jacob harshly. For 20 years, he's had to serve Laban to get the one daughter that he was promised in marriage. And now he has two and has given 20 years of hard service. But Jacob's not completely innocent either because he's left Laban's house and his wives have stolen something and they've hidden it. So now these two men are at an impasse. They both have not acted perfectly with each other and they need to establish something. And in 42 it says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands. And last night he rebuked you. Laban answered Jacob, The women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. 
Isn't it funny how two people get into an argument, they both seem equally right in their own eyes? Isn't that amazing? Are these all Laban's flocks? No, they belong to Jacob now, right? Are they Laban's daughters only? Are they not Jacob's wife? But there's some truth in what he's saying, isn't there? They were once his flocks. God's blessed him and given them to Jacob. They were once his daughters, but God's blessed Jacob and now they're his wives. But each man's got his own perspective here and watch what happens. He says, all you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have borne? Come now, let us make or cut a covenant. You and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap. They ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagir Shethdutha. <laughs> How about that? And Jacob called it Gelid. I like Jacob's better. It's easier to say. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it was called Gelid. And it was also called Mizpah. All of these words mean that you're being watched by God, is, is what all of these words basically mean. Because he said, May the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are each away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Laban also said this to Jacob. Here is this heap, and here is this pillar. I have set it up between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I will not go past this heap to your side and harm you, and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side and harm me. They're making a covenant with each other, that they're not going to harm each other, that they're going to take care of each other's things. And this enforced a proper relationship. Covenants in the Bible were always to establish a right relationship with people. Does that make sense? Are you getting that so far? They're not only legal, although they are legal. You would each get a copy of these words that you had spoken. Have you ever been to a mortgage signing? Yeah, or any contractual obligation? You do something called duplicate originals. You do a duplicate original and you both sign each copy. Why do you do that? You do that to ensure that there's no foul play. You do that to ensure that you are both looking at the same set of standards, it's equally clear to both of you, and you both have the same commitment. And in almost all contractual obligations today, there's penalties for not getting it right. You're going to pay my lawyer's fees is one of the first things they say. I've been more familiar with that lately than I wanted to be. This is set up for a reason. And in the ancient Near East, it was no different. This was to govern relationships. And so each party had terms and promises. And each party had legal obligations to govern their relationship. And they each had signs and witnesses. In this case, these were physical items that were the signs. You could see a heap of stones. And the witness was God Himself. Isn't that interesting? They said, hey, even if nobody's with you, God will see. Covenants are not made, they're cut. Let's talk about the cutting for a minute. We don't know what they cut here, but we know that they made a covenant, and to make a covenant is to cut something. We didn't hear that Abimelech and Abraham cut anything, but when it says they made a covenant or a treaty, they had to cut something. And the next thing you'd see is Abraham bringing lambs. This is because 
in these times when you made a treaty with somebody, you brought something that was precious to you. So for argument's sake, let's say you're making a treaty with me. I might bring Jag, right? This is my dog that I love. Gabe would bring Sushi, his dog that he loves. We would cut these animals in two as we made this covenant. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? Gruesome. Can you imagine? And when, the, when you cut something in two, one of the first practical questions is which way do you cut it? You have to render it two separate halves. Why? This is because one of the things that is implied in every covenant is that as we separate these two animals and we stand between them, what we're saying is if we break the terms of this covenant, this is what we deserve. You ever seen two little kids make a pinky promise? Two brothers become blood brothers? How'd that happen? You see it in the movies if you never did it. We used to cut our thumbs, right? Each one of us would cut our thumbs because that hurt. It meant you were serious about this. Then you would touch your thumb to your buddy's thumb and you would swear. You would make a blood oath. This goes back to biblical times. If something was important to you, if you needed to get this down for all the heavens to see, something had to die. Something precious to you. And then you would stand in between the halves and you would make promises to each other. And there would be blessings for getting it right and curses for getting it wrong. There were penalties. And this would govern your relationship. It would make sure that your relationship was in its proper boundaries. Then you would have something that was a symbol to remind you no matter what you did. Covenants were usually made on the basis of equal terms, right? Gabe and I have come together as two men and we want to make a covenant. But they weren't always. In fact, what would happen sometimes, we did this in Iraq in the first Gulf War. We made a covenant on whose terms with Iraq? It was on ours. Why? You remember we sent Storm and Norman in there? Why? because we had just conquered them in a conflict. And if they wanted a way out of the conflict, they needed to meet our terms. This is a covenant of unequal proportions, meaning that someone is the reign, the king, the ruler, the monarch, and somebody else is becoming the serf, the peasant, the vassal. The Bible teaches us that we've gone into covenant with God. And it's real interesting to study and see whether or not we entered on equal terms or did we enter as Him as our King and what was halved and who stood in the middle and all of those neat things. When the Bible uses the word covenant, it comes right out of a rich Hebrew heritage. In fact, it is within the rich Hebrew heritage that it's used. It meant something to the people. We treat the word covenant as, oh, there's an old covenant, there's a new covenant, here a covenant, there a covenant. And somehow it loses something precious. But if you had to cut an animal in half that you loved, that was valuable to you, and stand between the two halves, you might remember that all of your life, huh? Yeah, I would think so. Covenants are relational. They are cut, meaning that something has to bleed for you to have a covenant. They are made between equals or unequals. And all covenants have a form to them. Okay? People argue about what these forms are, but you can go back and look in Egyptian culture, you can look in Babylonian culture, and you can certainly look in Israeli culture, and when you find covenants that were made, they all follow a certain form. Y'all want to know what that is? 
Good, then we're not wasting our time. David, you're going to write on the right side of the board. The first thing, up there, the first thing that you write is the preamble. Our Constitution has one of those, huh? A preamble. So the first one is a preamble when you're looking at an ancient covenant. The second is a prologue. The third is requirements. The fourth, blessings and curses. Didn't he write better than I did? The fifth, a summary document. Number these. Summary for the fifth. Now this is particularly interesting. When we look at the five books of the Torah, what we see is that God was not just putting a legal restriction on people. We tend to think of the law as a legal restriction. We look and say, oh, well, this is what they could do and what they couldn't do. And we ignore the fact that God Himself was trying to draw people into a relationship with them. And in that relationship was trying to tell them how to act. No different than when two men draw each other into a relationship. When Abraham and Phicol get together, they talk about what they both need from each other. What the first five books of the Bible do is draw mankind into a relationship with God and then tell us how to relate with each other in the terms of the covenant. A preamble in this identifies the parties. A preamble in a written covenant says who is a party to the covenant. No different than a contract. starts off and says that on this day, this shall be established between parties thus and so and thus and so. This goes back to ancient times. Well, what does Genesis do? Genesis introduces the parties. Genesis says, hey, we're going to talk to you about the God who created the heavens and the earth and a man, Adam, a race who is put on the earth. The Bible has a preamble. Now, what's interesting as we talk about this is there are many covenants in the Bible. In fact, I sat under some teaching that was very good. It talked about nine covenants in the Bible. Now, we could argue all day long about whether they're seven, nine, twelve... I found five this morning that are not on that list. So they call them the nine major covenants in the Bible. And that's okay. I'm not here to argue about specifics of covenants. What I want you to get as we start to talk about this is the lengths with which God went to display in a culture that He wants a relationship with you. That He is trying to teach us the terms. And better yet, when we get to the blessings and the curses and the summary document, it will blow your mind how far He goes to meet us where we are. It really is neat. So, in Genesis, we see that the preamble is the creation account. In another covenant, for instance, though, the Mosaic covenant, the preamble might be in Exodus 20 when we say, I am the Lord God. Right? It identifies the party who called you out Egypt. That identifies the other party. And then he goes on to talk about terms. You can find this in all covenants if you look closely. The next is a historical prologue. This is, tells you about how did we get to a place where we need a covenant. With Abraham, if I call this, hey dude, some of your servants are harassing mine about this well. That's the historical prologue. 
Uh, from FICOL's standpoint, it's, hey, we see that God's with you everywhere you go, and we're kind of worried about that. We, we've seen your history and that pretty well nobody can stand against you. You've whipped quite a few kings in this area. Would you be nice to me, please? I'll make a covenant with you. That's the historical prologue. In the Bible, the historical prologue in the first five books tells how we get to the place where we need to make a covenant. Mankind fell. The story of Noah. All of these things are part of the historical prologue. They bring you from the introduction of the story up to a place where you realize, wait, something has to be done. We can't continue like this. We need intervention. Does that make sense? God's catching us up on the story. Now, as I talk to you about these things, some of them are foreign in that you don't tend to look at the Bible in terms of a covenant with five parts to it. You don't open Exodus 20 and go, wow, look, I see all five parts. You didn't do that before you walked in here today. But the people that it was given to understood it because it was the language of their day. And the more we study, the more we do things like write Yeshua HaMashiach on our pulpits and put prayer shawls and mezuzahs and those things around us as teaching tools, the more we find out the links to which God revealed Himself in a covenant and how easy He's trying to make it. The thing that struck me the very most when I went to Israel the first time, I mean, just blew me away, is that if Jesus stood in a place and said, narrow is the way that leads to life and broad is the path that leads to destruction, He's standing in front of temple steps and the entrance is half as narrow as the exit. And everybody understood exactly what He was saying. If He said, a city on a hilltop can't be hidden, He was standing in a place where there was a city on a hilltop. The Bible was never meant to be hard. It was never meant to be something that you had to have a master's in divinity to understand. In fact, the greatest stories in the Bible are about the men that were unlearned and untrained, and yet nobody could deny they had been with Jesus. And the ones that were learned and were trained in all the wisdom of Israel considered it rubbish compared to what God revealed to them. Isn't that amazing? Aren't you glad that God is trying to reveal Himself through creation? That He's trying to reveal Himself through a culture that can be seen and smelled and felt and visited and touched. All of those things. We don't serve an abstract God. The agnostics would say that God put everything in motion and then backed off. How could you say that when you see things like this? Involved in daily life. Involved in every detail. Something's encouraged me this week, saints. Whether it shows up in my preaching or not, I don't know. But something's encouraged me this week. And it was not that Charlton Heston split the heavens from the clouds and spoke to me and said, Eric, let my people go. You know? It's that in the small things, going to a post office need a package. And a package that some people would think was not particularly holy. Okay? Yeah, y'all are wondering, what's the package? Eric's buying dope. No. <laughs> but it's not Bibles in this package, okay? I'm not supposed to be able to pick it up till tomorrow. The lady at the post office looks at me like, are you kidding me? You know, because I got the little slip, I got to get it tomorrow. And I said, ma'am, I could use this package today. She goes, whatever. <laughs> I think, oh, great. Turns around, walks off, reappears 45 minutes later with the package and says it's not supposed to be here. It's not signed in, but it was here. I'd been praying in the Holy Spirit for 45 minutes waiting on her. That encouraged me that God cared about my silly package. And not just that one. 
I've had four or five events like that. And when you begin to see these things and you say, my goodness, the God that created the universe is trying to make Himself understandable to me, discoverable to me. He's trying to be relevant in my life. All of a sudden, this gets exciting. Well, to these people, for Him to reveal Himself in this way, they could go, oh wow, this is not too hard. And you find prophets saying things like, what does God require of you, O man? Walk humbly, love mercy, act justly. You know, you find them looking at this pattern and going, hey, we understand. I think it's beautiful. You want to learn more about it? Okay, so we've got a preamble that identifies the parties. We have a historical prologue. This details the events leading up to why you need a covenant. For instance, if we're going to talk about the Noahic covenant, what led up to needing a Noahic covenant? People were wicked on the earth. It was hurting God's heart. You know? The uh, apocryphal book of Enoch says that they were eating each other. Right? I would say that's pretty bad. Was it a blood covenant? Oh, the whole world shed their blood. Except eight people. <laughs> right? Did it have a sign? Yeah, it hung a rainbow in the heavens. Did it have promises? I'll never earth again. And I'll rebuild this place with you. These covenants show up over and over and over. And the kids were raised on these stories. They understood them. There was a time in our nation's history where if you said the first few words of the Constitution, people could quote it because it was still important to them. This is a society that never lost that fervor for their Constitution, which was the Torah. They loved it. They saw it as God's direction for their life and still do. Okay. So, historical prologue. The next thing are the requirements. What each party is going to do. This is where you find things like, I desire to bless you. I want you to know what is right in your children after you. If you do this, then you will have rain. You will have crops. All of these kinds of blessings. Some of them are on that sign over there. They're the requirements of each party. You can find that contained in the first five books of the Bible, in the Torah. It teaches us that. We call it the law. The next part is the blessing and the curses. The blessing and the curses says what happens when you meet the requirements and what happens if you don't. The end of the book of Deuteronomy, we're on two mountains. They shout the blessings from one side. They shout the curses from the other side, reminding all of the people why it is that we serve God. If we were looking at these things solely in Exodus, in the Mosaic Covenant. In Exodus 20, starting in verse 2, says, I am the Lord. That's your preamble. We move to the prologue, the historical part. Who brought you out of Egypt? Remember, guys, you were in slavery. Now we need a covenant. You need help. Then the requirements were given. The Ten Commandments. Then blessings and curses were given. Judah, do you know of a blessing in the Ten Commandments? It's in the Fifth Commandment. What's the Fifth Commandment? Honor your father and mother. Why? See, you can teach a kid this. The requirements were that you honor your father and mother. The blessing that went with it was that it might go well with you and your children you have a long life. Can you think of a curse in the Ten Commandments? Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because anyone who misuses the name will not be held guiltless. Right? In these requirements came inherent Blessings and curses. Now, interestingly enough, what are the summary documents? What's the summary document? If all of this covenant is contained in the five books of the Torah, what would a summary document be? 
You'll like this if you like the Bible, I promise. All your life you've seen a picture that looked like this. Not pretty as mine. Because I'm obviously a superior artist to anybody that you've ever seen. You've seen a picture that looked like this. And we had writing. Drawing two tablets with writing on them. Right? That's a summary document. How have you pictured this all of your life though? If we got two tablets and ten commandments, what's on them? Well, we got five here and five here, right? Because we got two, and two divided, or ten divided by two puts five on each side. Or some clever, crafty preacher says, no, 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 no. Wait. Four of them deal with God and man, and six of them deal with man and man. So we have four, and here we have six, right? Who knows, and how can you argue? This is a summary document. You know what? If you went into covenant with somebody, would you want a copy of your contract? You want a copy of the summary document, don't you? So you do duplicate originals. I'd tell you this morning that there's no way to know for sure, but based on the customs of the people, I think all the Jews understand exactly why there were two tablets. There was one with ten commandments that were the summary of the law for them and one for God. You know what's interesting about that? What do you do with a contract? Let's suppose that Keith is going to... He has a contract called a trust. He's going to inherit Donald Trump's stuff, right? What would he do with that contract that promises him those blessings? He's going to go hide it somewhere safe, right? He's going to tuck it away, especially if it prescribes a curse for anybody that comes against the terms of the contract, right? Because there may be a day where there's a fight and he needs to hold up this contract and go, hey, wait a minute, I was promised this. You don't live by it? And something bad's going to happen to you. Okay? You would protect these documents, wouldn't you? So Moses goes up. He gets copies of these documents. Two. One for God and one for him. But what does God do? God says, oh, <laughs> Moses, I'm not real concerned about hanging on to my copy. You hold it. You hold it for me. God was not concerned about holding Moses to a legal Agreement. He was concerned about a relationship with Moses. He said, you know what? There's one place on the planet where I'm enthroned. It's with you. And it's with your people. It's symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant. Go put a copy in there with yours in your precious place where you're going to keep it and carry it around. I only revealed this and only entered into this covenant for you. God didn't need a covenant with man to get His relationship right with man. Man needed the covenant. God didn't need the copy to remind him of how he should act or what happens to him. I love Christians say, remind God of the Word. That comes out of Isaiah, and I think it's a bad translation. Word of faith has loved it. Remind God of the Word. Pray God into remembrance of the Word. Right, right. Because God forgets. Who are you reminding of the Word when you pray? You. All you who remember God's Word, give Him no rest until He makes Jerusalem the praise of the earth. That's how I think that should be translated, but who am I? Maybe we need to remind God because He's senile. But at least at the place where He gave the Ten Commandments, He wasn't senile. He didn't need to keep His copy. He gave it to Moses. Come on, saints, that's good stuff. God is not holding a contract over your head hoping to beat you into the dirt with legal terms. He only gave it to you because He wanted you to know how you should live. He cared about you. Say, well, why summarize it then? Make everybody read the whole thing. He's trying to make it easy for you. He said the law can be summed up in these ten ways. 
Now, interestingly enough, the man Jesus who came and lived the perfect law gave us yet a simpler summary. He said, oh, I know, there's five books. You have all memorized them but don't know how to live them. So I'm going to show you how to live them. And you had a summary document with ten commandments on it. But I'm going to reduce that for you. I'm going to cut it in half. I'm going to divide it by five, which is my grace. All you need to remember is the heart of the covenant. Covenant's two, by the way. What you need to remember is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. People say, oh, that's the place Oh No! It summarizes the law. Just like the Ten Commandments summarize the rest of the five books there. God was trying to show us how to walk in a right relationship with Him and how to find blessings and not curses because He loves and He cares. Comes me to Genesis 15. What did we call this message? Cutting a covenant. That's right. There is cutting involved. Cutting. Mm. In Genesis 15, would you all feel robbed if I didn't tell you everything you needed to know about this? You would? You'd feel robbed? Good. Let's start in Genesis 14 because I need to tell you that. In Genesis 14, starting with verse 17, after Abram, this is before Abraham's name had been changed by God, it says, After Abram returned from defeating Kedor Lamor and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of peace, that means, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, or Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Does it sound like God and Abram are in relationship with each other? And there's a priest here who is mediating that relationship. He's saying, Abram, you did what God told you to do and you're blessed. And Abram said, that's right, and I want a share of my blessing back with God to show I trust Him. This is the principle of tithing long before there's a law. Melchizedek, the king of peace, came to do that. Watch this. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to Yahweh, God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal. Why? So that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eschol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. We're going to get into a beautiful covenant here. But what I want you to get up front is there's already a relationship. Abraham's been called by God. He's answered the call and God is pleased with that. Certain promises have been made to Abraham that people have called the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to bless you and you're going to bless all the nations of the earth. To your offspring, I'm going to give this land and you'll dwell in it forever. That's Genesis 12. He says that I don't want you to take anything from these kings of the world because I am going to be your source. I am going to be your provision. Did Abraham believe him? Did he? 
He did. You know how? He refused their provision. He gave of what he had to God. And then he did what God told him to do. Saints, most of the church is walking around saying, I'm in covenant with God. I believe in God. God's good. But they don't believe Him and their actions show it in a variety of ways. They want what the world has, not what God will give them. And what they do have, they don't share with God. The saddest thing on earth is that Christians learn to say with their mouths things that they don't do with their hands. This church will never be that way. You'll get so sick of hearing me say it and it'll be so convicting you'll leave that all of you are here. And I'm excited it's because you're serious about doing what God wants you to do. Watch this. This gets awesome. God sees the heart of this man and so He moves on His behalf to reaffirm and reestablish a covenant. And watch what He does. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Every time you try to step forward in faith, every time you step out to do what God told you to do, denying the world's advice, doing what God says, it is dangerous and it is scary. You don't know what trust is if it has not bordered on the irresponsible. You don't know what faith really is if there was not something seriously at risk. And when you do that, when you step out there in faith and in trust, God is right there. And He says, oh, after Abraham did that, God was right there to say, hey, buddy, I will be your shield. I will be your great reward. God is just looking for a people who can be obedient. He's just looking for the chance for you to take a step in the right direction. Not a leap, not a jump, not a marathon in the right direction. Just show Him the slightest inclination of your heart in the right way. And He will honor you for it. And you'll come to bring testimonies. And then just like Israel, just like me, and like every other Christian you know, as time goes by, your memory will fade, and you'll forget, and you'll act like God can't do it. And you'll need to be reminded again. And because God knew that was true, He set a covenant in blood. Watch this. But Abram said, Oh, sovereign Lord! He's literally saying, Oh, Adonai Yahweh! So, well, why is that important? Does God have two names? God's got hundreds of names that describe His characteristics, but what He's saying when He says, Sovereign Lord, He says, Hey, guy, my owner, controller, my covenant God, uh, I'm crying out to you. He dresses Him in the way that is His heart's cry. He's not just saying, Elohim, God of the universe. He's not just saying, God who provides, Yahweh Yireh. He's saying, my owner, controller, my sovereign, Adonai, and my covenant God, Yahweh. He's addressing Him based on the needs of His heart. What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? It had been promised to him that all nations would be blessed through his offspring. That his offspring would get the land. And you know what? He's trying to be obedient, but he doesn't see it. Now, I know you can't relate to that. You've never put your house on the market because you believe God which is going to sell your house and then not seen it sell right away. You have never depended on God for a job and not seen it right away. You have no idea what we're talking about, right? Of course you do. Anybody who has ever tried to do something for God knows that hurt where you're sitting there in your prayer closet or maybe out in public saying, I'm trying here, Lord. You're not going to hang me out to dry, are you? I belong to you. I love. We're in covenant together, Lord. You are going to take care of me, aren't you? Y'all don't know what that is? Of course you do. Then act like it, saints. Help me out here. 
You never been there and hurt? I've been on my face in this room crying, praying, worried about the pressures that have to do with church life. And it's in those moments that God shows up and He says, Don't you worry, Eric. I will be your shield. I will be your very great reward. Watch this. What can you do for me? Eleazar is going to have to be my heir. Look at the third verse. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so my servant in my household will be my heir. You're just not doing it, God. I'm going to have to do it a different way. Then the word of Yahweh came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Do you remember that all covenants had with them some sign, some symbol to remind you? Abraham knew that too. He'd entered into treaties all of his life when he bought and sold things, when he lived next to people. And he said, God, it doesn't look to me like this is going to happen. How can I know that you'll do what you said? He said, Look up at the stars. Every time you see them, know that I'm faithful. That will remind you of my promise. The stars, because I'm the one who put them there. Look at the sand you're walking on. I made the very stuff that's under your feet, buddy. I can do this. Oh boy, how good. Watch this. Abraham believed Yahweh, and he credited it to him as righteousness. When you believe the Lord enough to trust Him, when you trust Him enough to show your belief by doing something, He counts you as right in His presence. So what well, it says He just believed. How do you know He believed? Because we're writing this after His life. You can see in His actions He believed. I hear people say, oh, I believe God can do this and I can believe that. But if we were writing the story of your life, would there be chapters following that statement that showed that it was true? Or would you be proven a liar? Hmm. Well, sometimes I'd be the liar and sometimes I'd be the saint. But I'm going to do better tomorrow. Watch this. Also, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. What does that sound like? A preamble. He's identifying himself again. He's identifying him because he's about to make a beautiful covenant with him. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, and he cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Where did Abraham get such a weird idea? It was the culture of the day to make a covenant that governed your relationship. And Abram is feeling insecure about the promises of God and wants him to feel secure. So he says, go get some things. Go get a heifer. That's from the bovine family, right? A heifer, though, is one that has not calved. A three-year-old heifer is a pure sacrifice. What else do you tell him to get? A goat. A goat is the burden bearer, the sin bearer, right? He said, also, go get a ram, the king of the sheep. I want you to cut these three in half, the pure, perfect heifer, the, the pure sacrifice. I want you to cut the goat in half, the sacrifice for sin. And I want you to cut 
the ram, that guy who's being sacrificed for no other reason than who he is, his crown of authority, the king of the sheep. I want you to cut him in half too. Bring two birds also. Then you won't be able to cut in half. Can you see how the heifers, Jesus, pure, uh, never calved, pure in lots of ways? You can see how the goat is Jesus. They would lay their hands on a goat. It would take the sin for the nation outside of the camp. You can see how the king of the sheep is Jesus. But what are these birds that are never cut in half? Well, everybody knows from New Testament typology, what's a dove? The Holy Spirit. What you may not know is that a pigeon is in the same family as a dove. In some languages, they're the same word. You know how you know the difference between them? The dove is clean and beautiful, and the pigeon is a nasty city dweller who lives in its own filth. What on earth? What a strange picture. If the other three are Jesus, how could these two be Jesus? He would be a union that could not be cut in two between the divine and mankind. And that would not be separated. He's speaking about a sacrifice that is to come. He's speaking to him about how he can know that there will be an offspring that is his. And he says, hey, he'll be pure. He'll bear your burdens. He'll be the king. And he'll be a union between man and God. Now watch this. Abram cuts all of them in two except the birds because you can't divide Jesus' divinity from his humanity. And watch. It says, Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. What a strange one-liner. You know, this is mentioned in Matthew 24 about the end times as well. It's mentioned in Luke 21. It's alluded to and people just kind of don't know what it means when God is right there trying to reveal His relationship to man, when He's telling him how you can know for sure that God is going to do what He says, the very powers of the air swoop down to try to destroy what He's doing. Because as long as you stagger around half asleep, not sure that God will do it for you, you won't act like He's going to do it. Faith is being sure of what you cannot see. That's what faith is. And the prince of the power of the air will try to prevent it everywhere he can. But what does the man of faith do? He beats them off. He fights to protect what God is revealing to him. And he fights them off. This is why in Matthew 24 it's related to false teachers trying to confuse you about what God will and won't do. Do you want to hear the rest? Do you want to quit now? Should we charge 19.95 for it? No. Okay, then we won't. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. There was another human being that fell into a sleep like this, and when he woke up, he went, Wow, man, that's a woman. Abram's fixing to find something just as awesome. Then the Lord said to him, No, for certain. Saints, I couldn't tell you enough. You need to quit playing with the Gospel and know for certain what God is and what He's not. So much rather see whores and tax collectors saved than people raised in church, especially when they're not real churches. makes me sick because we have degraded the Gospel. We talk it and don't walk it. But when people have been really radically born again, There is no question. The line's drawn in the sand. You can see what they were and what they are. The half-committed and the lukewarm make God sick. 
makes God sick. Let us not be found in that camp. He says, Abram, quit this doubting. I want you to know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. Is that good news? You will always have to count the cost when you follow God. You will always have to hear things like, the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. Are you sure you want to follow me? But I will punish the nation that serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. There's a promise. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Does it sound like God has things in control? Abraham says, how can I know for certain? He says, you're going to know for certain right now, and this is how. I'm going to give you a 400-year plan. I'm going to show you what I'm going to do each step of the way, even what doesn't involve you. But watch this. You remember? There's pieces of something cut in half. Precious animals representing Jesus. But to Abram, they were just precious animals. Things that he loved and he cared for and that had great value. This would be like cutting a Cadillac in half. Right? Or whatever it is that you like. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. God's represented in fire. When He makes the Mosaic Covenant 400 years later, He shows up in burning fire there. He shows up at night in a pillar of fire. In the day, by a fiery cloud. God's represented by this fire. These pieces, right now these are not covenants. These are not tablets. These are pieces of animals. God is going to pass back and forth between them. When you made a covenant in this culture, you both had to pass between dead animals. The implied position is, if I break the terms of this covenant, if I don't do what you tell me to do, or you don't do what I've told you to do, what's been done to these animals should be done to us. By the way, this is where you get the word adultery. You know what adultery literally means? An awful tearing. When two people are not faithful to their covenant, it's as if they were these animals that were torn in half. All this is related to covenant. So Abram is supposed to be here. He's supposed to be walking through, committing to God that he will do what God has said to do or he'll be torn in half. But where is Abram? Asleep. And where is God? He's walking between the pieces, committing that he will do what he said to do or be torn in half. If you're going to walk between these pieces, you could just step from front to back But if you're going to walk between them and talk, you might make this figure eight between them. God said in an eternal way, Abram, you can know for certain because only if I could be cut in half would I not keep these words to you. And he walked between these pieces, I think, in the figure of an eight, saying this is going to be a new beginning for your life. This could be a new beginning for you because from this day forward, you'll be certain. Do you believe that Abraham was certain? He was certain enough to take the offspring that God had said he would have and walk up on a mountain to kill him. What was this whole argument in this covenant about, by the way? An offspring, right? A supernatural offspring. He was waiting for and didn't have it. And how can I know that I would have it? God says, because I'll make a covenant with you, but your neck's not on the line, Abraham. 
Mine is. It's not you who will bleed for it. I will. So now Abraham's excited, right? Because we have an offspring coming. He's not scared to go sacrifice Isaac on the mountain because he believes God will raise him. But let's turn to Matthew 26 and see that offspring. You can hang in there with me a minute more. Oh, good boy. Judah said, it was wrong for me to want to sell you the rest of this message for 1995 because Jesus had already paid His price. Woo! What a good boy. In Matthew 26, sorry, I have to find it. Help if I was on the right page, wouldn't it? Starting in verse 18. Starting in verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, He said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray Me. They were very sad and began to say, one after the other, surely not I. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, one of the the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. Under what circumstances is Jesus taking this bread? When he's sitting in a room with somebody who is just, he knows, is going to betray him. Right? Watch this. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. When you take one piece of bread and you break it, what do you do? Split it into two halves. And what is the next words? What does he say? Take and eat my body. Jesus, just like God in Genesis 15, allowed Himself to be broken into two pieces that we could pass through His work, what He was doing, in a new covenant. A covenant that He's going to go on to say is in His blood. When we cut covenant, something had to die to ensure the terms. We were both supposed to contribute that something and we are both supposed to bear the penalty of the covenant if we don't get it right. And in both of these covenants, God Himself provided what was split in two. And then He stood in the middle showing He would bear the penalty for you. How can I be certain? How can I be certain? It's because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Him. Every time we take communion, what we're doing is we're saying, Lord, we're in covenant with You. There are rules. There's blessings and there are curses, but you've taken all of the curses and left me all the blessings. And we wear His Spirit in us and His name upon us is a sign. A sign that is supposed to guarantee what is to come. The blessings. How awesome that the God of the universe has pulled us into relationship with Himself. That He's taken everything that was difficult in it. He didn't need the relationship. We did. He doesn't need the written Word. We do. He doesn't need a sign to remind Him. We do. He doesn't need the threat of penalty. We did. But He even took that upon Himself. 
How beautiful is that, saints? Turn with me to Hebrews 12 and we close. While you turn there, though, I want to read you this. It says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And He gave it to His disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is My body. Then He took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them. Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. How can I know for certain? You can know for certain because He tore Himself in half to prove it to you and poured out His blood to make it real to you. And that was something that they understood. Y'all in Hebrews 12? In Hebrews 12, scanning down to about the 22nd verse, listen to how this writer put it. By the way, Hebrews, those are Germans, right? Hebrews, those, those guys are Russians. No? Icelandic? Hebrews, that's right. This is Jesus' people, familiar with the customs, the very race that birthed Him. This is a letter written to the Hebrew people. Verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you remember what the blood of Abel said? My brother killed me. He's guilty. My brother killed me. He's guilty. My brother killed me. He's guilty. It cried out from the ground against Cain. Jesus' blood cries out something too. I took the penalty for them. I took the penalty for them. They're new. I took the penalty for them. Every time we take communion, we're supposed to remember that He took the penalty for us. That God established a relationship with us. One that we've not handled well. But He took upon Himself the penalty for us. See to it that you do not refuse Him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from Him who warns us in heaven? Verse 28, the promise of the covenant. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The same God that told Abraham he could know that these things would happen for certain and appeared in fire and walked through the halves of the animals saying, I will take all of the responsibility. I will take all of the problems of this covenant to make sure that you can know for certain it's going to happen, showed up in a first century Galilean Jew who said, I too am going to make a covenant with you and I will make it on the basis of my own blood. You won't have to die for it. You won't have to be cut in two for it. I will. So that you can know for certain that if you'll just trust me, you'll make it. The writer of Hebrews says, man, how could we ignore something like that? How could we ignore it? And I ask the same thing, saints. Don't fall asleep because it's familiar to you. Don't curl right up next to such a great covenant and go, huh, it's all commonplace. 
That veil in the temple had been torn to show mankind for the first time in 4,000 years had access to God. And it was a momentous event. It was so momentous that there was an earthquake and graves burst open and people ran around telling the glories of God that had been dead before. Is it any less momentous today in your life? You have access to God because of somebody else's blood by way of a covenant that they have already paid all of the penalty for. And now we are dead men shaken by God to be raised alive and go tell everybody it's time to do that. Next week, show your zeal by bringing somebody to this place. If you don't get them to this place, bring church to them. Everywhere you go, carry the presence of God with you. Remember, somebody has paid a horrible price for you to be in relationship with God. God is not a legal God who holds a document over your head wanting to beat you with it. In fact, He gave you His copy because all He really wants with you is a relationship. Stand up. Let's pray.